Time for swordplay. Alex, actor Christian Bale played the role of Dick Cheney in a political satire, which he recently won a Golden Globe for as Best Actor. Upon receiving his award, Christian Bale gave thanks to Satan for inspiring him. Any thoughts? Well, Nick, I did see on a Twitter feed that Satan had posted a response, which said, No problem, Bale. After all, a deal is a deal. Hashtag buying souls. Hashtag my favorite Christian. Hashtag too easy. Hashtag just getting warmed up. Huh. I'm not sure what all that was about. Oh, man. I thought you were going to go in the direction of Bale worship. Oh, hey, look out. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Press, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. My name is Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're going to be discussing part of the book of Nahum. We're going to introduce the book and then deal with the first chapter. And let that be a reminder to the audience to go back and read the book of Nahum. It's only three chapters, but today we'll cover the first chapter as well as an introduction. So what do we have on the docket, Nick? Lots of uh, good stuff. I guess we'll start with who Nahum is. Who is Nahum? Well, according to a first century work that was done, first century AD, by the way, and it's a book called The Lives of the Prophets. It's in the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, it's a book that recounts the biographical information of famous prophets. And so it's in the Pseudepigrapha. Might not be true. I don't know. But chapter 11 does talk about Nahum. And it said that he died in peace, that he was buried in his hometown, and it adds that he was of the tribe of Simeon. If that's true, Nick, then the city that he was from, if it's in the tribe of Simeon, may have been within the boundaries of Simeon, which was actually located in the southwestern portion of Judah. So the book also adds, the lives of the prophets talk about Nahum, it also adds that Nahum prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed by fresh water and an underground fire. And it concludes that this was indeed fulfilled when an earthquake caused a lake to flood the city and a wilderness fire spread to consume the upper part of the city. And I think this uh, little clever exegesis was probably made uh, on the basis of Nahum chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where it says God's wrath is poured out like fire. Uh, he breaks up the rocks, i.e. an earthquake, and an overflowing flood will wipe them out. So the theme of fire and water does seem to fill the book of Nahum. That's probably where the writer of the Lies of the Prophets got that information. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, no, I, that's good stuff. Um, Nahum, uh, prophet from uh, the 7th century. Uh, his name means comfort. It's actually, uh, Nahum is related, the name, uh, to the name uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Ah. Uh, so Nahum, he hails from Elkosh, and um, don't really know where that is. There's some discussion about where. Uh, I think you pointed out some good stuff there about the tribe of Simeon. If that's accurate, that's where we'd probably find that little village or hamlet or whatever it is that uh, Nahum hailed from. But uh, at this point, it's kind of uncertain where Elkosh is. But he's an Elkoshite and hails from that city. Well, let's talk about uh, next. When was this book written? Well, I was looking through Josephus, and Josephus actually quotes a little chunk of Nahum, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, though he's definitely going off of a different different Hebrew text uh, than the one we're working with. 
But uh, he concludes with remarking that all of Nahum's prophecies came to pass about 115 years later. So if Nahum prophesied 115 years later it came to pass, well, we know that the fall of Nineveh was in 612 BC. So that means Josephus believed Nahum's prophecy uh, came around 717 BC. Mm. That's in his Antiquities of the Jews uh, 9.242. That's interesting. That'd back him up to the 8th century then. Yeah, it would. Um, Well, on the other hand, (laughs) uh, 3 verses 8 through 10 uh, speaks of the fall of Thebes, or your translation may say no Ammon. And uh, the, the fall of Thebes took place because of the Assyrians. And that fall is spoken of in the past tense. In my English standard, they sat by the Nile, she became an exile, she went into captivity, and the rest of that. Now, fall of Thebes is dated to 662 B.C., so uh, a lot of... Uh, commentators, scholars, they believe that Nahum prophesied sometime between 662 and 612 B.C., uh, somewhere in that 50-year window. Uh, Given the imminence of the coming fall of Nineveh, it reads like it's almost right. It's right here at the door. It's right here in the uh, near future in a couple of places, 2 verse 1, 3 verse 14 of Nahum. Uh, Given that imminence of the fall of uh, Nineveh, it's believed that it is near the end of this period that Nahum receives this prophecy, and therefore he could be a contemporary with Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. He's another one of these 7th century prophets. But there's another way of looking at this, right, Alex? Yeah, we don't want to forget about the Septuagint, which has uh, that passage you quoted in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, uh, in regard to Thebes or Noamon. The Septuagint says, Who dwells, present tense, whose empire is, present tense, the sea. Her strength is, present tense, Ethiopia and Egypt. And she will go, future tense, into deportation, uh, etc. Perhaps Josephus was working with an earlier version of the Masoretic text and perhaps a similar version of the Masoretic text that was uh, used in the Septuagint translations. So I guess on this one I'll cast my vote with Josephus and the Septuagint, but Um, uh, obviously... We also can't forget the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and I'm looking at them right now, and they have the past tense for this as well. It's kind of interesting, kind of a... Six, one, half dozen of the other? I don't know. Right, right. So Dead Sea Scrolls, though, also has a little bit of damage there in the text. But the parts that aren't damaged, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. Uh, Putin, Lubim were her helpers. She was carried away into exile. That's true. So, could be either way. (laughs) I'll stick with my guns. (laughs) <laughs> but I could be wrong. <laughs> uh. Well, Nick, next question is then, if Nahum is the one prophesying and he is writing, then what uh, particular group is he writing to? Who's his audience? It's interesting because Nahum's prophecy is primarily directed toward Nineveh and that 
city, uh, even to the king. 3 verse 18, he's talking to the king there. Um, that's the primary audience, it would seem. However, there are a few verses in Nahum, one verse, uh, verses 12 and 13, one verse 15 as well. Those are addressed to Judah. And I think it was intended to be reading material in Judah for the the people of God to read, take note, and uh, to stand in awe and reverence of their God. Uh, what's your take on this? No, I think that's right. The book is about Nineveh, uh, though I doubt the residents of Nineveh cared much about it, if they even knew about it at all. Uh, Nahum is never sent to Nineveh like Jonah is. It just simply states in chapter 1, verse 1, that this was a prophetic vision given to Nahum. So uh, there's no chance for repentance in this book. It's just, here's the vision, God's going to wipe you out. So, yeah, yeah, this seems to be reading material for Judah, just like you said. Well, as they're reading the book then, Nick, how is the book itself structured? Would anything stand out in the way that it's uh, put together? Yeah, um, one writer, Robert Chisholm, in his uh, handbook on the prophets, he notes that there's a uh, chiastic structure to this whole book. And what a chiasm is, is um, it's kind of a, a literary device, uh, often found in poetry, where you have parts that correspond to later parts. And it's usually uh, like an A, B, B, A structure that you'll see. Uh, a corresponding to the second A, the first B corresponding to the second B. In this case, there's uh, A, B, C, D, E structure, uh, kind of an extended chiasm here, where the middle of this, the E, corresponds to three verses, one through four, which is the actual woe oracle pronounced upon Nineveh. And then surrounding that uh, is an announcement of judgment, uh, and that's right before it in 2.13 and then right after it in three verses, five through seven. Uh, And then before that, there's also the taunt uh, that's given two verses 11 and 12, which corresponds to three verses 8 through 13. Uh, and then you back up even from that, there's a dramatic call to alarm, two verses 1 through 10, which corresponds later to three verses 14 and 17. And then you back all the way up uh, to the beginning and the end of the book, essentially, uh, where you have the Assyrian king who is taunted, and then in chapters 1, Chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, you have Judah who is urged to celebrate. And then at the end of the book, there are others who celebrate, 3 verses 18 through 19. So you have these corresponding parts, corresponding chunks of the prophecy throughout um, throughout the writing. Uh, if you back off, you kind of have um, an, a basic outline where uh, chapter 1, here comes the judge. So you have this theophany, God shows up, and it's a, it's a traumatic thing. Uh, the whole creation is just shaken because God shows up. And then the judge issues a judgment in chapter 2, which is ultimately utter ruination, which is depicted in chapter 3. Uh, what about you, Alex? What do you see here? Yeah, so with your chiasm there, you're saying it's like a mirror image that exactly. sort of winds up and then reverses itself. Great way of describing it, yep. Yeah, I think you can find uh, many of those in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it, it does seem to be a, a popular literary device used um, in all of uh, the biblical writings that we have. 
the uh, I like those uh, outlines you gave. A couple of ways that I uh, saw as I was researching was that chapter 1 is the announcement of destruction, chapter 2 is the description of destruction, and chapter 3 is the reason for destruction. Mm, Good stuff. Uh, Another one that I uh, liked is it uses uh, three main images common in judgment language, uh, lions, prostitutes, locusts, and so I just remember the book like that, lions and prostitutes and locusts, oh my. (laughs) So... Wizard of Oz. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, let's press forward here and <laughs> talk about uh, various manuscripts. Alex, talk to us. Do, do various manuscripts offer any additional insight into Nahum? Yeah, two notes on this. First one is if you read in the Septuagint, the wording does differ quite a bit from the Masoretic text. And so there were a few spots where I did find the Septuagint more clear and understandable at times, although that doesn't mean it's perfect or without error. Uh, Perhaps it's wrong about the dating of the Thebes thing. But there's another uh, thing going on here in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So not everybody may know about this. The Dead Sea Scrolls has different categories. So there's like the biblical portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then there's the sectarian portion. So the biblical portion is usually like the Dead Sea Scrolls that correspond to books that we have in our Bible or even the Apocrypha or even the Pseudepigrapha. But then all the other stuff, it's called the sectarian material. And so in the sectarian material, there's a commentary on the book of Nahum. And if you want to look this up, it's labeled as 4Q169, 4Q169. And in this commentary... The uh, evil of the Assyrian Empire and their subsequent destruction are interpreted to be a shadow or made parallel to the evil of the Pharisees during the days of the Qumran community. And they took it as a prophecy about the type of destruction that would come upon the Pharisees and the evil religious leaders in Jerusalem. So in the commentary, Pharisees are given the pejorative names flattery seekers and deceivers of Ephraim. Now, when Nahum talks of Assyria as the harlot and the deceiver of nations in Nahum chapter 3, verse 4, the Qumran community then in their commentary, they applied that to the Pharisees and to their lies and their deceptions that they uh, spread throughout the nations. Now, that's pretty interesting. That is especially applicable when we consider our eschatology as Christians and how to interpret eschatological writings, especially the book of Revelation. So I just thought that's interesting. Keep that in mind, that uh, the way Nahum was read by the Qumran community in the first century B.C. uh, gives sort of the basis or background to how Revelation can be read in first century A.D. by Christians. Very interesting. Well, Nick, how does Nahum's vision of Yahweh differ from what most people think about God today, we're talking about the first three verses here in the book of Nahum, this jealous, avenging God. Right, How does that right. Different? Verses two and three, the Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Mm. So the words that stand out there, of course, jealousy, avenging, wrathful, vengeance, not clear the guilty. 
Is there not in most people's theological lexicon, even perhaps some Christians' theological lexicon? Uh, mm. It wasn't too long ago. I saw an interview with Joel Osteen, pastor of one of, if not the largest megachurch in America, America's pastor. He was on the Larry King Live show. He admitted that he doesn't like to use the word sin, and he stays away from sin and hell and all those sorts of things. Millions of people read his books. They listen to his sermons. And I think most Western American people simply will not stomach this God of the Old Testament, which is often how he's classified. You know, there's Jesus, who's all the love, and God of the New Testament and all that. But then there's the God of the Old Testament who's wrathful and all that. Listen, this... Marcionism? Exactly. This this is the same God uh, throughout. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the God of Christ, and he's the God of Paul and Peter and all the rest, Uh, because there's just one God, of course. And I think this viewpoint is due, no doubt, primarily to a low view of sin and the holiness of God. A holy, holy, holy God cannot countenance sin. Uh, He's also just. He's right in punishing and avenging and pouring out his wrath upon sin. Listen, I think most people like the one verse seven God of Nahum. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold, a refuge in the day of trouble. Mm, Yes, the plaque. Yeah, they they love that, but the two verse, uh, or excuse me, the one verses two and three, Yahweh. This is kind of foreign to a lot of people. So I think, I think that's how uh, Yahweh, in a lot of people's mind, differs from what they actually, what is actually in the Bible. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is definitely a balance to be struck, especially in verse three, where it says Yahweh is slow to anger. Right. So it's not like this was a overnight on a whim, snap decision that Yahweh made to destroy Assyria. It took a long time to build this up. So this Yahweh is slow to anger attribute, that's a defining attribute of Yahweh found in 13 different places in the Old Testament, including this one. Uh, When you really think about it, nobody wants the guilty to go unpunished. Not when we're talking about the depth of evil like the late Assyrian Empire. Uh, And here's the thing. We may want God to remove evil from the world, but how does that work? Will he surgically remove all of the worst criminals within a city or a country? No, I don't think so. If anything, that's our job, either through the gospel or the governing authorities, Romans 13.3. But Yahweh will take down a whole nation or a whole city when the cup of their iniquity is full, and that is uh, the way it works. That fills up the cup of iniquity, and then he pours it back on the people who filled it up. And that's the way it's going to work until the final judgment, in which case, yeah, all of evil will be dealt with, and this whole place will get smoked. Well, we move on to chapter 1, verse 4 now. And in this judgment scene, this oracle of Nahum, he starts to mention places like Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon. Nick, is there anything to those places? What do we know about Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon? Well, I mean, for us, a couple thousand years uh, removed from this, these are kind of foreign places, right? I mean, uh, but for the original audience, Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, these symbolized 
certain things for the original audience. They, they were symbolic of prime real estate, fertile areas. It was the finest land, very lush, very rich territory. Uh, they were essentially drought resistant. You wanted to be in Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon when uh, drought was imp- impending or when it was upon the land. But verse 4 tells us they're all going to wither. All of these will wither, and it's not before a drought. It's going to be before the word of Yahweh that all of these places will wither. Nature itself here is depicted as being impacted by the word of God when he comes to take vengeance and pour out his wrath. Uh, What else is here, Alex? What else can you tell us about these three locations? Well, I'm going to go out on on a limb here and say that there may even be some spiritual messaging behind these geographical landmarks. Go for it. So Bashan is in the northernmost part of Israel, known today as the Golan Heights. In ancient times, this place had some pretty dark connections. The word Bashan itself, it can mean serpent or place of the serpent. So that sounds dark, kind of hearkening back to the serpent of the Garden of Eden. In the Ugaritic language, that's another Semitic language in the ancient Near East, the word Bashan is equivalent to the Ugaritic Bathon. So I guess they had a lisp problem, Bathon, um, which also means serpent in their language. Before the uh, Transjordan conquest by Moses, it was previously that territory of Bashan. It was under the rulership of the Amorite king Og. If you remember, Og was this... uh, mentions for some weird reason his bed and his bed was uh this super huge uh, 12 foot long bed it was crazy and after his defeat uh that land was given to the half tribe of manasseh now og of bashan is said uh, specifically a couple of times that he was the last of the rephaim and if you go back and look at that the rephaim was one of the lineages of the giants now they believed in giants it was a given. Where do you think Goliath came from? Might explain why his bed was so big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this guy was was thought to be a giant of the lineage of one of the giant tribes. Now, back to Bashan. The tallest mountain in the Bashan mountain range was called Mount Hermon. And in the Canaanite pantheon, remember the Canaanites are the ones that the Israelites are going to destroy and kick out of that land under General Joshua. But in the Canaanite pantheon, El is the Most High God. And by the way, his preeminent son is Baal. But El is the Most High God, and he uh, made his abode on Mount Hermon. So that's his home base, is Mount Hermon. And, and having gods associate themselves and make their home base on big mountains is pretty common in the ancient Near East. So in the pseudepigraphical letter of Enoch, Mount Hermon was the location where rebellious angels descended from heaven in the days of Jared. So we're talking about, you know, before the flood, before Noah. And they descended in order to take human wives. And the children of those wives and rebellious angels became giants. So you have more connections here. Now, in the New Testament, Caesarea Philippi is located in northern Bashan at the foothills of Mount Hermon. At the base of the plateau of the city existed a cave known as Pan's Grotto. Pan was a satyr, half goat, half human god person. And the grotto, or a cave, 
they believed, led into Hades, the realm of disembodied spirits. And Hades has gates and everything like that. You remember Jesus says, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Right. So right after that, they go up onto a mountainside, and Jesus is transfigured. So it was likely Mount Hermon that Jesus takes James and John and Peter to reveal his transfiguration. So Jesus went to the headquarters of ancient evil and picked a fight. And so all that is to say, Bashan was spiritually infamous and represented a place infested with evil. So that's Bashan. Are there spiritual evil ties with Carmel then? You bet. If you uh, haven't read First and Second Kings lately, you can go back and look at the story of Elijah and how Mount Carmel is the location where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. So Mount Carmel was uh, one of Baal's holy mountains. And in fact, later on in history, it becomes one of Zeus's holy mountains, which is why Baal and Zeus get conflated as uh, people look at pantheons throughout the ages and cultures. So even with the home court advantage, the evil deity of Carmel gets smoked by Elijah and Yahweh. So there's the background for Carmel. But what about Lebanon? Well, the valley of Lebanon, known for its cedar trees, was right below Mount Hermon, so in that same area. And it's also associated with the Lebanon mountain range. And so there is a Mount Lebanon as well. And with that mountain range and in that region, uh, in ancient times, that area was widely known to be the dwelling place for the gods. So when Yahweh comes to judge a nation, we're looking at Assyria in the book of Nahum, it also means judgment for the evil spiritual rulers of darkness. Because what's the real war? Is it flesh and blood? No, it's the spiritual rulers and powers in darkness. So it's no wonder that the mountains associated with the other gods are going to be diminished in Nahum's prophecy. One last thing, in Enoch, fallen angels are sometimes called burning mountains especially in regard to their uh, imprisoned state when God has them bound up and thrown into Tartarus. It's no wonder that the mountains quake and shake before Yahweh. They know that they're in trouble. And I think Nahum's prophecy gives you sort of this veiled reference to the spiritual warfare going on. And I think this lines up well with what God plans to do with their idols at the end of the chapter in verse 14. He's going to take those molten images and those idols, and he's going to destroy them. And for the the mountains quaking reference, that's verse five right there, right in right in the context that you were talking about, um, with all the the mountains and everything. Good stuff. Well, this is uh, more references to darkness. I mean, verse eight says Yahweh will pursue his enemies into darkness. What does that mean, Nick? Well, it <clears throat> may refer to Sheol. That was the uh, subterranean realm of the dead. That's that was how they depicted it. Uh, in their day and time. It's often pictured as a dark place. It's dark, gloomy, right? Just this uh, place everybody went to. All disembodied spirits ended up there. Um, so Yahweh pursuing his enemies in the darkness is also paralleled here in verse 8 with the complete end of his adversaries. It's also repeated in verse 9. He will make a complete end of Nineveh. So it may just speak to death. Uh, and, of 
course, on the other side of death, Sheol. But uh, right. this is uh, very similar to something that, uh, again, in my view, that Jeremiah, his contemporary, uh, what he wrote about in Jeremiah 13 and verse 16, give glory to Yahweh your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. And this is uh, a prophecy, a word spoken uh, in the context of God bringing judgment and bringing judgment upon the inhabitants of his own land. So you you get these darkness motifs among the prophets, and um, I think they can line up with uh, with death and perhaps even Sheol. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, if you continue down that Sheol trajectory, it's almost like Yahweh is saying, hey, let me escort you to your new prison. I mean, new residence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we have? Uh, verse 10, uh, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble fully dried. How in the world, Alex, are tangled thorns and drunkards related? Ah, well, here we're going to get into some um, manuscript debating, but I would say that uh, drunkards are not related to tangled thorns. A more clear reading can be taken from the Septuagint. Now, uh, some commentators who go with this idea, thinking how are tangled thorns related to drunkards, They'll say that the image is you have a drunkard who gets, uh, you know, falls over in his, in his drunken stupor, gets tangled up in weeds, and then he's like sort of trapped there and he can't even get out of the way of a wilderness brush fire that's coming to consume him. And so he'll be consumed up with the, the tangled thorns. Um, I'm not sure if that's the picture going on, but what do you think, Nick? Well, it's interesting, you know, you, um, you mentioned the Septuagint. I'll uh, see your Septuagint and raise you a Dead Sea Scroll. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls support the uh, the drunkenness reading, uh, as does the, the Latin Vulgate uh, as well. Um, yeah, uh, so the Dead Sea Scrolls for like tangled thorns and drunken as with their drink. They are utterly consumed as dry stubble. Uh, and in fact, I believe that this reading does fit with the immediate context uh, the very next phrase is, they are consumed. And that Hebrew term is used not only for chaff that's burnt up, but also the consumption of liquor. Uh, as well, you have the larger context. You have the pouring out of God's wrath, and that is often depicted as the cup of his wrath, which Yahweh makes nations drink to the dregs, and they stumble around in a drunken stupor into their own destruction. Uh, You also have the overflowing flood there in verse 8. And so in point of fact, what's interesting, Lang in his commentary translates this as they are drowned in their carousing. And that, again, also fits with the overall context. So I I think it can work. I think it, it, it fits there in all this highly poetic language that Nahum is using here to describe God's coming judgment upon Nineveh. Uh, but what, what what's the other side of this coin, Alex? Well, on the other hand, here's the Septuagint. Septuagint says, because he will be made dry as far as his foundation, 
and will be eaten like twisted bindweed and like fully dried stubble. So since God's wrath is poured out like fire in verse 6, the fire then becomes the consumer. You have this personification of fire. He becomes the consumer or the drinker or the eater of the dried stubble and the bindweed. In other words, I think it's describing Nineveh becoming a big pile of kindling ready for the fire. Mm. And so I think something happened along the way in translation where the word used for consume or eaten or drink, um, I think that gets perhaps is, is the where the stumbling occurs in translations where it's like, oh, well, it must be talking about drunkards. Or it could be talking about the fire drinking up or consuming or eating the, the kindling material, which is now Nineveh. So I guess I'll cast my vote with the Septuagint again. I <laughs> might be outnumbered with the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, other Masoretic texts. But it seems clearer contextually. There's less hoops I have to jump through to make my conclusion in the Septuagint. What's well, next? Verse 12, there is a multiple, it seems like there are multiple audiences being referenced, but it doesn't name them. You just have they, you kind of language. And so it gets a little confusing. So I just thought verse 12, we would answer the question, who will be cut off and who was afflicted? Who are the who's, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> verse 12 says, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So you're exactly right. They, you, language going on here. I think there's a couple different parties here. In my English Standard Version, they are those who will be mown down. It's like the grass is going to be cut. And you are those who, though afflicted, they're no longer going to be afflicted. So uh, verses, I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about uh, who the book was written to. Verses 12 and 13 are addressed to Israel, uh, as is verse 15. Brief word to the king of Assyria. We're going to talk about uh, that, I believe, here in a little bit, but um, uh, in verse 14. So Yahweh is saying to Judah, essentially this, the Assyrians, they, the Assyrians are presently strong and numerous, but I will bring out the old John Deere and I'm going to cut them down because they're the oppressors of my people. But my people, you, my people will no longer experience affliction from them. Uh, and so I want to emphasize here uh that this judgment oracle from the mouth of Yahweh, I'm, I believe it's still valid today. Anyone who uses power and wealth or status as a means to oppress the weak, the poor, the lowly, they effectively stand opposed to Yahweh. And in addition to that, you if you line up with the power brokers, I believe that also brings you into opposition to Yahweh. So it's a very serious thing. You don't want to be on uh, the the side of the oppressors. You want to be able to identify with the meek and the lowly and those who mourn. Man, I think I hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount could be here. So, yeah, um, yeah I think I think that's how this verse gets parsed in the long run. Yeah, I think that's right. And when you think about the um, oppression 
which Assyria had uh, done to to all the other nations around her. I, I think that's a good reminder for people today in that there is actually something um, wicked and evil about that. And that brings us to our tough, tough text tough of the text. day. In verse 11 and 15, you have a specific character who is called the Wicked Counselor and says he's plotting evil against Yahweh. So, Nick, who was the Wicked Counselor plotting evil against Yahweh? Well, depending upon which Bible you read, uh, the identity of this Wicked Plotter uh, may be supplied for you. For example, the NIV supplies O Nineveh. Uh, in in uh, verse 15, mm, verse 11, excuse me. And uh, that seems to be making the city itself the wicked counselor. Uh, but the the Hebrew doesn't support that, and the lexicon doesn't, or the, excuse me, the Septuagint doesn't either. Uh, part of the issue is whether or not to take this as a past tense thing like my English Standard Version that says uh, that this wicked ruler uh, from you came one, uh, or uh, the New American Standard says has gone forth from you, or to take it as a future tense, uh, the Septuagint reads that way, it will come out, uh, or possibly as a present tense, uh, since this is one who plots and counsels, as the NIV translates it. So... Past, present, future. Okay, let's let's just track this down historically, I guess. The past tense reading would point to the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who had ruled from 705 to 681 B.C. And uh, going for this is the fact that Sennacherib, he was the last king to bring a real threat to Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18, verse 13 through 19, verse 37 records that. The problem with this, for me, is that it doesn't quite fit the time frame uh, for what we're talking about here. Um, there's a present tense reading. The present tense has something going for it because that would make it Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian king who ruled for much of the time frame that we have in view here, uh, 668 or 9 to 625 or 7 BC, depending upon who you ask. He's the king who actually sacked Thebes, no Ammon, and he seems to have his eye on Judah. Uh, in fact, it seems Manasseh, who was king of Judah at one time, he was led away by hooks and chains by Ashurbanipal's commanders of his army. Second Chronicles 33 verses 11 through 13 record that. There is also the future tense view, uh, future tense reading. That would see this as Esarhaddon II, who's actually the last king of Assyria. He rules from 620 to 612 BC. Uh, and he was the one who was actually on the throne when the Medes and the Persians came banging on the door. Uh, did he have schemes in his heart to try and attack Judah? Uh, perhaps. But then the Medes and the Persians came, and Esarhaddon II actually ends up burning his own house down with his family inside. Hmm, all that talk about fire may fit with this. But anyway, yikes, you don't want to be in that guy's family. Wow. So, yeah, a few different ways you can look at this, how it could be understood. Uh, what say you, Alex? Well, once again, I'm going to stick with the Septuagint on this one. And uh, I'm going to read this as future tense because that's the way the Septuagint has it. And so that would agree with your last option about Esarhaddon II. Uh, however, I think a more sinister entity may be addressed uh, 
he might be the one being addressed in this prophecy. And I was just noticing as you were uh, talking is that the attack is he's planned evil against Yahweh. So this is a specific attack against Yahweh. That was interesting, uh, perhaps equivalent to just Yahweh's people. But here's what got me thinking. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word for wicked used in these verses, uh, 11 and 15, is the word belial, belial. Now, if you're scratching your head and you're like, huh, belial, belial, where does that sound familiar? Um, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 mentions belial. It says, what, uh, you know, what sharing or fellowship does Jesus have with belial? Paul putting these polar opposites, uh, contrasting them. So uh, the wicked one, Belial, in Nahum, is said never to pass through Judah ever again. Now, it's given that by the time the New Testament comes along, that there is this development in an intertestamental period, that Belial is another name for Satan. And so that's where you get that Christ pitted against Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15. So here's a comparison uh, passage in the Old Testament that you can take a look at. It's 2 Samuel 22, and you compare that to Psalm 18, because Psalm 18 is written by David, and it's about his deliverance from his enemies and from King Saul. So the story is in 2 Samuel 22. The psalm is in Psalm 18. Now, 2 Samuel 22, verse 5 says uh, that he was delivered from torrents of destruction. But that word for destruction is actually the Hebrew word belial. So it should say torrents of Belial. Now read 2 Samuel 22, verse 17. David says, He drew me out of many waters. And that same line, though, in Psalm 18, verse 17, is, He delivered me from my strong enemy. So who's the strong man, right? Who's the strong enemy? That's Satan. That's Belial. But it parallels that with being drawn out of many waters. Now I think that has something to do with Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. In the Septuagint, it says, The Lord rules over many waters. So there might be a connection there. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the sectarian, sectarian material, uh, there's a scroll called the War Scroll, it's 1QM, and the Thanksgiving Scroll, it's 1QH. And there are other texts as well that in those scrolls and texts, the name Belial is mentioned all over the place, especially in regard to the battling that takes place between the Archangel Michael and Belial. Book of Jude, anybody? Archangel Michael yeah. disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Or even Revelation chapter 12, the Archangel Michael defeating the dragon and his angels. So this eternal, you know, battling between good and evil in the Dead Sea Scrolls is pictured as Michael versus Belial. So I think Nahum chapter 1 verse 15 then uh, may be an eschatological text about the abolishing of all evil and the Satan, i.e. Belial. So it's a temporary fulfillment in the human in which Belial is empowering. That would be Esser Hayden II or any other wicked ruler. But eventually, the spiritual entity behind these evil empires is going to have to be dealt with. And that entity is Belial. That is Satan. What do you think about that? We're at war. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, 
these the war that we wage, just as you said, is not flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces of darkness. So uh, when it comes to, you know, these earthly rulers, I mean, you know, people talk about, man, you know, um, the devil's really st- tempting me, you know. They, people say that, you know. And that's kind of a vernacular way of talking about just these spiritual forces of darkness, whether we acknowledge it or not. The reality is, just as you're saying, Satan has bigger fish to fry than little old me or you. And I think uh, that that's uh, a definite possibility that he was there with these Assyrian kings. He's, uh, And it doesn't have to just be Assyria, just any world leader. Um, I think Satan definitely has a role to play in the grand scheme of the geopolitical realm. So... Very interesting stuff. Well, Nick, we're at the end of chapter one. We're going to save chapter two and three for next week. And I wanted to ask the question, do we have any allusions from the book of Nahum that are made in the New Testament? And I was especially thinking about this last verse in verse 15 about the the, uh, good news. What do you think? Yeah, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. De- that's definitely a callback to Isaiah, I think. Um, again, from my perspective, this Nahum coming along a little later after Isaiah. So Isaiah 52, verse 7, uh, is where you can read uh, a similar passage, similar take on that. It's possible. Romans 10, verse 15 comes to mind. Um, but that is usually attributed to Isaiah. Right. I think that's right. Um Paul, he quotes Isaiah four more times in that surrounding context in Roman, the end of Romans 9 and into Romans 10. <clears throat> so, um, but uh, it's possible. It's possible. What do you think? Yeah, I think maybe no quotations or strong allusions, but perhaps a few echoes. If Ooh, you echoes. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So back to Romans. Uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord, Romans chapter 12. Now, that might be one of the echoes where you have the very beginning of this chapter talking about Yahweh's vengeance, and he takes revenge, and he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. And so you got to leave room for Yahweh's vengeance. There might be an echo there as well in Romans 12. In addition to the uh, Romans 10 reference that you mentioned, and even, I guess, the uh, Belial uh, echo in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, so, there's also... Um looking at Luke 2 about the peace on earth and good tidings toward men and all that. Right, right. So, could be. Could be some echoes there. A few echoes going on back and forth. Okay, Nick, well, I think that wraps it up for Nahum chapter 1. We got our intro, we got the first chapter down, and uh, next week we're going to be getting to the nitty gritty, and uh, it does get gritty, folks. So chapter uh-huh. two and three uh, might have to be uh, R-rated, not especially um, good for our younger audiences out there. So let's uh, make sure that we're careful with uh, chapter two and three next week. We'll, we'll do our best to keep it PG-13. But... That's right. That's right. We'll try to keep yeah. it clean over here, folks. Don't want to have to put the explicit warning on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Speaking of the podcast, in the meantime... Uh, go to the uh, Apple Podcast Store. Go to the Google Play Store, 
and uh, search Swordplay. You'll find the podcast there. Um, uh, the episodes uh, all there. You can download them to your particular iDevice. Uh, and feel free to leave a, a review. That'll help us get the word out about this podcast. That's right. And if you have any questions, email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to answer your questions in a future episode. And so give us a shout out. And until next time, this has been another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.